Introduction of the Fairchild Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen O'Neill. The Fairchild Family by Mary Martha Sherwood. Introduction. The history of Lucy, Emily, and Henry Fairchild was begun in 1818, nearly a century ago. The two little misses and their brother played and did lessons, were naughty and good, happy and sorrowful, when George the Third was still on the throne, when gentlemen wore blue coats with brass buttons, knee breeches, and woollen stockings, and ladies were attired in short waists, low necks, and long ringlets. The Battle of Waterloo was quite a recent event, and the terror of Bowley was still used by nursery maids to frighten their charges into good behaviour. Perhaps some of those who take up this book and glance at its title page are saying to themselves, we have plenty of stories about the children of today, the children of the twentieth century, not of the early nineteenth. How should it interest us to read of these little ones at the time of our great-grandparents, whose lives were so dull and ideas so old-fashioned, who never played cricket or tennis or went to London or to the seaside, or rode bicycles, or did any of the things we do? To anyone who is debating whether or no you will read the Fairchild family, I would say, try a chapter or two before you make up your mind. It is not what people do, but what they are that makes them interesting. True enough, Lucy, Emily, and Henry led what we should call nowadays very dull lives, but they were by no means dull little people for all that. We shall find them very living and real when we make acquaintance with them. They tore their clothes, and lost their pets, and wanted the best things, and slapped each other when they disagreed. They had their good times and their bad times, their fun and frolic and their scrapes and naughtiness, just as children had long before they were born and are having now, long, long after they are dead. In fact, as we get to know them, and I hope to love them, we shall realise, perhaps with wonder, how very like they are to the children of today. If they took us by the hand and led us to their playroom, or into Henry's arbour under the great trees, we should make friends with them in five minutes, even though they wear long straight skirts down to their ankles and straw bonnets burying their little faces, and Henry is attired in a frock and pinafore, albeit he is eight years old. We should have glorious games with them, following the fleet Lucy running like a hare. We should kiss them when we went away, and reckon them ever after among our friends. And so, as we follow the history of the Fairchild family, we shall understand, better than we have yet done, how children are children everywhere, and very much the same from generation to generation. Knowing Lucy and Emily and Henry will help us to feel more sympathy with other children of bygone days, the children of our history books, with pretty Princess Amelia and the little Dauphin in the Bastille, with sweet Elizabeth Stuart, the rosebud born in snow of Carisbrook Castle, and a host of others. They were real children, too, who had real treats and real punishments, real happy days and sad ones. They felt and thought and liked and disliked much the same things as we do now. We stretch out our hands to them across the misty centuries and hail them our companions and playmates. Few people nowadays, even among those who know the Fairchild family, know anything of its writer, Mrs. Sherwood. Yet her life, as told by herself, is as amusing as a story, and as full of incidents as a life could well be. When she was a very old woman, she wrote her autobiography, helped by her daughter, and from this book, which has long been out of print, I will put together a short sketch which will give you some idea of what an interesting and attractive person she was. The father of Mrs. Sherwood, or, to give her her maiden name, Mary Butt, was a clergyman. He had a beautiful country living called Stanford, in Worcestershire, not far from Malvern, where Mary was born on May the 6th, 1775. She had one brother, a year older than herself, and a sister, several years younger, whose name was Lucy. Mary Butt's childhood, in her beautiful country home, was very happy. 
she was extremely tall for her age strong and vigorous with glowing cheeks and dark eyes and very long hair of a bright auburn which she tells us her mother had great pleasure in arranging she and her brother martin were both beautiful children but no one thought mary at all clever or fancied what a mark she would make in the world by her writings mary was a dreamy thoughtful child full of fancies and imaginings she loved to sit on the stairs listening to her mother's voice singing sweetly in her dressing-room to her guitar she had wonderful fancies about an echo which the children discovered in the hilly grounds round the rectory echo she believed to be a beautiful winged boy and i longed to see him though i knew it was in vain to attempt to pursue him to his haunts neither was echo the only unseen being who filled my imagination her mother used to tell her and martin stories in the dusk of winter evenings one of those stories she tells again for other children in the fairchild family it is the tale of the old lady who was so fond of inviting children to spend a day with her the first grand event of mary's life was a journey taken to lichfield to stay with her grandfather old dr butt at his house called pipe grange she was then not quite four years old dr butt had been a friend in former days of maria edgeworth who wrote the parents assistant and other delightful stories of mr day author of sandford and merton and other clever people then living at lichfield he knew the great actor david garrick too who used to come there to see his brother and the famous dr samuel johnson who had been born and brought up at lichfield but to little mary scarcely more than a baby these things were not of much interest what she recollected of her grandfather was his present to her on her fourth birthday of a doll with a paper hoop and wig of real flax and her memories of pipe grange were of walks with her brother and nurse in green lanes of lovely commons and old farmhouses with walls covered with ivy and new trees cut in grotesque forms of feeding some little birds in a hedge and coming one day and finding the nest and birds gone which was a great grief to me soon afterwards the nursery party at stamford was increased by two little cousins henry and margaret sherwood they had lost their mother and were sent to be for a time under the care of their aunt mrs butt they joined in the romps of martin and mary and very lively romps they seemed to have been mary describes how her brother used to put her in a drawer and kick it down the nursery stairs how he heaped chairs and tables one on the other set her at the top of them and then threw them all down how he put a bridle round her neck and drove her about with a whip but she says being a very hardy child and not easily hurt i suppose i have myself to blame for some of his excesses for with all this he was the kindest of brothers to me and i loved him very very much when mary was six years old she began to make stories but she tells us she had not the least recollection of what they were about she was not yet able to write so whenever she had thought out a story she had to follow her mother about with a slate and pencil and get her to write at her dictation the talk mary and martin heard while sitting at meals with their parents was clever and interesting many visitors came to the house and after a while there were several young men living there pupils of mr butt so that there was often a large party the two little children were never allowed to interrupt but had to sit and listen whether willing or not and in this way the shrewd and observant mary picked up endless scraps of knowledge while still very young she tells us a good deal about her education in these early days it was the fashion then for children to wear iron collars around the neck with a blackboard strapped over the shoulders to one of these i was subjected from my sixth to my thirteenth year it was put on in the morning and seldom taken off till late in the evening and i generally did all my lessons standing in stocks with this stiff collar round my neck at the same time i had the plainest possible food such as dry bread and cold milk i never sat on a chair in my mother's presence yet i was a very happy child and when relieved from my collar i not unseldom manifested my delight by starting from our hall door and taking a run for at least half a mile through the woods which adjoined our pleasure grounds martin meanwhile was having a much less strict and severe time of it mr butt was an easy-going man who liked everything about him to be comfortable and pretty and was not inclined to take much trouble either with himself or others 
while mary was with her mother in her dressing-room working away at her books martin was supposed to be learning latin in his father's study but as mr butt had no idea of authority martin made no progress whatever and the end of it was that good mrs butt had to teach herself latin in order to become her boy's tutor and mary was made to take it up as well in order to incite him to learn the children were great readers though their books were few robinson crusoe two sets of fairy tales the little female academy and aesop's fables made up their whole library robinson crusoe was martin's favourite book his want when a reading fit was on was to place himself on the bottom step of the stairs and to mount one step every time he turned over a page mary of course copied him exactly another funny custom with the pair was on the first day of every month to take two sticks with certain notches cut in them and hide them in a hollow tree in the woods there was a grand mystery about this though mary does not tell us in what it consisted no person she says was to see us do this and no one was to know we did it in the summer that mary was eight years old a quaint visitor came to stanford rectory this was a distant relative who had married a frenchman and lived at paris through the gay and wicked period which ushered in the french revolution mary's description of this lady and her coming to the rectory is very amusing never shall i forget the arrival of madame de peleve at stanford she arrived in a post-chaise with a maid a lapdog a canary-bird an organ and boxes heaped upon boxes till it was impossible to see the persons within i was of course at the door to watch her alight she was a large woman elaborately dressed highly rouged carrying an umbrella the first i had seen she was dark i remember and had most brilliant eyes the style of dress at that period was perhaps more preposterous and troublesome than any which has prevailed within the memory of those now living this style had been introduced by the ill-fated marie antoinette and madame de peleve had come straight from the very fountain-head of these absurdities the hair was worn crisped or violently frizzed about the face in the shape of a horseshoe long stiff curls fastened with pins hung on the neck and the whole was well pomatumed and powdered with different coloured powders a high cushion was fastened at the top of the hair and over that either a cap adorned with artificial flowers and feathers to such a height as sometimes rendered it somewhat difficult to preserve its equilibrium or a balloon hat a fabric of wire and tiffany of immense circumference the hat would require to be fixed on the head with long pins and standing trencher-wise quite flat and unbending in its full proportions the crown was low and like the cap richly set off with feathers and flowers the lower part of the dress consisted of a full petticoat generally flounced short sleeves and a very long train but instead of a hoop there was a vast pad at the bottom of the waist behind and a frame of wire in front to throw out the neckerchief so as much as possible to resemble the claw of a pigeon such were the leading articles of this style of dress and so arranged was the figure which stepped forth from the chaise at the door of the lovely and simple parsonage of stanford my father was ready to hand her out my mother to welcome her the bandboxes were all conveyed into our best bedroom while madame had her place allotted to her in our drawing-room where she sat like a queen and really by the multitudes of anecdotes she had to tell rendered herself very agreeable while she was with us she never had concluded her toilet before one or two in the day and she always appeared either in new dresses or new adjustments i have often wished that i could recall some of the anecdotes she used to tell of the court of versailles but one only can i remember it referred to the then popular song of marlbrook which she used to sing when the dauphin she said was born a nurse was procured for him from the country and there was no song with which she could soothe the babe but marlbrook an old ballad sung till then only in the provinces the poor queen heard the air admired and brought it forward making it the fashion this is the only one of madame de peleve's stories which i remember although i was very greatly amused by them and could have listened to her for hours together my admiration was also strongly excited by the splendour and varieties of her dresses her superb trimmings her sleeves tied with knots of coloured ribbon her trains of silk her beautiful hats and i could not understand the purpose for which she took so much pains to array herself 
I think when we read of Miss Crosby's arrival at Mr. Fairchild's, and the time she kept them all waiting for supper while she changed her gown, we shall be reminded of these early recollections of Mrs. Sherwood's. A year or two later this quaint madame came again on a visit to Stanford, and on this occasion, as Mary tells us, she put it into the little girl's head, for the first time, to wonder whether she were pretty or no. No sooner was dinner over, she says, than I ran upstairs to a large mirror to make the important inquiry, and at this mirror I stood a long time, turning round and examining myself with no small interest. Madame de Pelevé further encouraged her vanity by making her a present of a gauze cap of a very gay description. It must have looked odd and out of place perched on the top of the little girl's very long hair and very rosy cheeks. Another of Madame de Pelevé's not very judicious presents was a shepherdess hat of pale blue silver tiffany. But as this hat had to be fastened on with large, long corking pins, it proved a terrible evil to its wearer, which, perhaps, was just as well. By this time, dear brother Martin had been sent away to school at Reading, but little Lucy was growing old enough to be something of a playmate, and Margaret, the motherless cousin, had been brought again to Stanford on a long visit. We can fancy what a delightful companion to these two small ones Mary must have been. She had left off, for the time, writing stories, but she was never tired of telling them. In company she was, in those days, very silent and shy, and much at a loss for words, but they never failed her when telling her stories to her little companions. Her head, she says, was full of fairies, wizards, enchanters, and all the imagery of heathen gods and goddesses which I could get out of any book in my father's study, and with these she wove the most wonderful tales, one story often going on at every possible interval for months together. Her lively imagination filled every region of the wild woods at Stanford with imaginary people, wherever i saw a few ashes in a glade left by those who burnt sticks to sell the ashes to assist in the coarse washings in farmhouses i fixed a horde of gypsies and made long stories if i could discern fairy rings which abounded in those woods they gave me another set of images and i had imaginary hermits in every hollow of the rocky sides of the dingle and imaginary castles on every height whilst the church and churchyard supplied me with more ghosts and apparitions than i dared tell of mary and her stories must have been better worth having than a whole library of fairy books one source from which Mary drew her tales was a collection of old volumes which her father had bought at a sale, and to which her mother had given up a room over the pantry and storeroom. Mr. Butt made Mary his librarian, and she reveled in old romances, such as Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia, and in illustrated books of travel, spending many hours on a high stool in the book-room, among moths, dust, and black calfskin, studying these treasures. One more glimpse must be given of those happy child days, and we will have it in Mary's own words. I grew so rapidly in my childhood that at thirteen I had obtained my full height, which is considered above the usual standard of women. I stooped very much when thus growing. As my mother always dressed me like a child in a pinafore, I must certainly have been a very extraordinary sort of personage, and every one cried out on seeing me as one that was to be a giantess. As my only little friend of about my own age was small and delicate, I was very often thoroughly abashed at my appearance, and therefore never was I so happy as when I was out of sight of visitors in my own beloved woods of Stanford. In those sweet woods I had many little embowered corners, which no one knew but myself, and there, when my daily tasks were done, I used to fly with a book and enjoy myself in places where I could hear the cooing of doves, the note of the blackbird, and the rush of two waterfalls coming from two sides of the valley and meeting within the range where I might stroll undisturbed by any one. It must be noticed that I never made these excursions without carrying a huge wooden doll with me, which I generally slung with a string round my waist under my pinafore, as I was thought by the neighbours too big to like a doll. My sister, as a child, had not good health, and therefore she could bear neither the exposure nor fatigue I did, hence the reason wherefore I was so much alone. From this cause, too, she was never submitted to the same discipline that I was. She was never made so familiar with the stocks and iron collar, nor the heavy tasks. 
for after my brother was gone to school I still was carried on in my Latin studies, and even before I was twelve I was obliged to translate fifty lines of Virgil every morning, standing in these same stocks with the iron collar pressing on my throat. When Mary was between twelve and thirteen a great change came in her life. Her father was presented to the vicarage of Kidderminster in Staffordshire, where the carpets are made. It was then a very rich living. It was settled that they should go to Kidderminster to live, while a curate was to do duty at Stanford and occupy the rectory. In those days clergymen often held two or even three livings at once in different parts of the country, taking the stipends themselves and putting a curate in charge of whichever parishes they did not choose to reside in. Mary was pleased at the idea of a change, as children generally are, and so was her father, who loved society and the noise and bustle of a town. But to poor Mrs. Butt, who was a very shy, timid, retiring person, the idea of exchanging the glorious groves of Stanford for a residence in a town, where nothing is seen but dusty houses and dyed worsted hanging to dry on huge frames in every open space, was terrible. Mary could well remember how, during that summer, her mother walked in the woods, crying bitterly and fretting over the coming change till her health suffered. Life in the big manufacturing town was much less wild and free than it had been in the Worcestershire parsonage, but the two little girls managed to be very happy in their own way. For one thing, they had a bedroom looking into the street, and a street was a new thing to them, and they spent every idle moment in staring out of the windows. They had a cupboard in which they kept their treasures, a doll's house which they had brought from Stanford, and all the books they had hoarded up from childhood. These, with two white cats which we had also brought from Stanford, happily afforded us much amusement. Mary's rage for dolls was, moreover, at its height, though she more than ever took pains to hide her darlings under her pinafore from the eyes of Kidderminster. Most of all, however, they amused themselves, when alone, by talking together in characters, keeping to the same year after year, till at length the play was played out. We were both queens, Mary tells us, and we were sisters, and were supposed to live near each other, and we pretended we had a great many children. In our narratives we allowed the introduction of fairies, and I used to tell long stories of things and places and adventures which I feigned I had met with in this my character of queen. The moment we two set out to walk we always began to converse in these characters. My sister used generally to begin with, "'Well, sister, how do you do today? How are the children? Where have you been?' And before we were a yard from the house we were deep in talk. Oh, what wonderful tales was I wont to tell of things which I pretended I had seen, and how many, many happy hours have I and my sister spent in this way, I being the chief speaker. Not long after their coming to Kidderminster, Mary's father took her with him on a visit to a large country house in Shropshire. They drove all the way in a gig, a manservant riding behind on horseback. They reached the house just in time to dress for dinner, at which there was to be a large party. Mary had to put on her very best dress, which, she tells us, was a blue silk slip, with a muslin frock over it, a blue sash, and, oh, sad to say, my silver Tiffany hat. I did not dare but wear it as it had been sent with me. A maid had been told off to dress Mary, and great was the pains which she took to fix my shepherdess hat on one side, as it was intended to be worn, and to arrange my hair which was long and hanging in curls, but what would I not have given to have got rid of the rustling Tiffany? Mary describes her consternation when she reached the drawing-room in this array, and found a number of great people there, but no other child to consort with. When everybody went to walk in the shrubberies after dinner, and a gentleman offered her his arm, as was the wont in those days, she was so panic-stricken that she darted up a bank, threw the shrubs in the way, and showed herself no more that evening. The next thing that happened was that the other little cousin before mentioned, Henry Sherwood, came to live with the butts and go to a day-school in the town. Mary recalls him as she saw him on arriving, a very small, fair-haired boy, dressed in a full suit of what used to be called pepper-and-salt cloth. He soon settled down in his new home, a very quiet little personage, very good-tempered and very much in awe of his aunt, with the fame among his cousins for his talent for making paper boxes one within another. His bed was in an attic next door to his big cousin Martin's room. Martin had a shelf full of books which Henry used to carry off to his own domain and read over and over again. 
from these books he first dated an intense love of reading which was destined to be his chief standby in old age we shall not wonder that mary loved to recall her early remembrances of this little schoolboy when we know that several years later he became her husband with whom she spent a long and happy married life mary has other amusing recollections of this time of her early girlhood and tells them in her own charming way we must pass on to her school life which is bound to interest her readers of to-day so many of whom go to school it was the summer of seventeen ninety mr butt had been taking his turn of duty at the chapel royal st james being by this time one of the chaplains to the king on his way home he stopped at reading to visit his friend dr valpy in whose school martin had for a time been educated during this visit dr valpy took him to see a sort of exhibition got up by the young ladies of monsieur and madame de st quentin's school this famous school which was afterwards removed to london was held then in the old abbey at reading this thought mr butt is the very place for mary and to the abbey school it was decided that she should go martin was now at westminster school when the time came for him to return after the holidays mary had a seat in the chaise and drove with him and her father as far as reading you will be amused by her description of her school and schoolmistresses and of her first introduction to them the house or rather the abbey itself was exceedingly interesting and though i know not its exact history yet i knew every hole and corner of what remained of the ancient building which consisted of a gateway with rooms above and on each side of it a vast staircase of which the balustrades had originally been gilt then too there were many little nooks and round closets and many larger and smaller rooms and passages which appeared to be rather more modern whilst the gateway itself stood without the garden walls upon the forbury or open green which belonged to the town and where dr valpy's boys played after school hours the best part of the house was encompassed by a beautiful old-fashioned garden where the young ladies were allowed to wander under tall trees in hot summer evenings when mary arrived at the abbey the holidays were not quite over and she was the first of the sixty pupils to present herself the school was kept by madame de st quentin and a mrs latournelle who were partners madame as the girls always called her was an englishwoman by birth but had married a french refugee whom circumstances had obliged to become french teacher in the school madame was a handsome woman with bright eyes and a very dignified presence mary tells us that she danced remarkably well played and sang and did fine needlework and spoke well and agreeably in english and in french without fear mrs latournelle was a funny old-fashioned body whose chief concern was with the housekeeping tea-making and other domestic duties she had a cork leg and her dress had never been known to change its fashion her white muslin handkerchief was always pinned with the same number of pins her muslin apron always hung in the same form she always wore the same short sleeves cuffs and ruffles with a breast-bow to answer the bow on her cap both being flat with two notched ends mrs latournelle received mary in a wainscoted parlour hung round with miniatures and pieces of framed needlework done in chenille representing tombs and weeping willows mary was to be what in those days was known as a parlour boarder which meant that she was treated in part as a grown-up young lady had more liberty and privileges than the other girls and in fact was allowed to do very much as she liked she thought herself gloriously happy on coming down to breakfast next day in the twilight of a winter's morning to be allowed to eat hot buttered toast and to draw as near as she liked to the fire neither of which things was it lawful to do at home mary was vastly amused during the first few days at seeing her future schoolfellows arrive one after another the two first to come were a pair of twin sisters named martha and mary lee so exactly alike that they could only be distinguished by a mark which one had on a forehead underneath the hair there were many other big girls but none besides herself who were parlour boarders during that quarter mary soon chose out three to be her special friends a miss paltenham amelia renagle daughter of an artist who in that day was rather celebrated and mary brown niece of mrs latournelle monsieur and madame de st quentin presently returned and mary tells us how shy she felt when monsieur summoned her to undergo a sort of examination full well i remember the morning when he called me into his study to feel the pulse of my intellect as he said in order that he might know in what, what class to place me 
all the girls whom he particularly instructed were standing by all of them being superior to me in the knowledge of those things usually taught in schools behold me then in imagination tall as i am now standing before my master and blushing till my blushes made me ashamed to look up eh bien mademoiselle he said have you much knowledge of french no sir i answered are you much acquainted with history and he went on from one thing to another asking me questions and always receiving a negative at length smiling he said tell me mademoiselle then what do you know i stammered latin virgil and finished off with a regular flood of tears at this he laughed outright and immediately set me down in his class and gave me lessons for every day the discipline of the abbey seems to have been very slack especially for the big girls this is how mary describes it the liberty which the first class had was so great that if we attended our tutor in his study for an hour or two every morning no human being ever took the trouble to inquire where we spent the rest of the day between our meals thus whether we gossiped in one turret or another whether we lounged about the garden or out of the window above the gateway no one so much as said where have you been mademoiselle mary butt spent a year at reading where she learnt a good deal of french and not it would seem much of anything else she left it the following christmas with many tears thinking that her school days were over but a few months later her parents decided to send her back to the abbey for another year and that her sister lucy should go too that was in the autumn of seventeen ninety two when the french revolution was just beginning on january the twenty first seventeen ninety three terrible news came of the murder of the unhappy king louis the sixteenth all europe and england especially were horrified at the cruel deed and at the abbey where there was a strong french royalist element feeling round particularly high monsieur and madame went into deep mourning as did also many of the elder girls multitudes of the french nobility came thronging into reading gathering about the abbey and some of them half living within its walls our friend mary as a half-fledged young lady saw a great deal of these poor refugees who had lost everything but their lives they seem however to have shown the true french courage and gaiety under evil circumstances there was much singing and playing under the trees and they helped the schoolgirls to get up some little french plays to act at their breaking up party mary took a part in the character of a french abbess but she tells us that assuredly her talents never lay in the acting line and very honestly adds i could never sufficiently have forgotten myself as to have acted well soon after mary's finally leaving school her parents decided to put a curate in charge of the kidderminster living and to return to lovely stanford this was a great relief to poor shy mrs butt who had been like a caged bird in kidderminster but the young people were not quite sure if they liked the change they had made many friends in the town and its neighbourhood and now that mary was as we say nowadays come out she had been taken to various balls and other diversions they soon however settled down again in the old home and as there was a large delightful and very friendly family at stanford court hard by they found plenty of variety and amusement even in the depths of the country the young butts went across very often to dine at the court and on these occasions their hostess lady winnington got up little impromptu dances which they greatly enjoyed often mary writes when we dined at the court she would send for the miller who played the violin and set us all to dance my brother was always the partner of the eldest miss winnington and as neither of them could tell one tune from another or dance a single step we generally marvelled how they got on at all the steward also a great big and in our opinion most supremely ugly man generally fell to my sister's lot thus we did very well and enjoyed ourselves in our own way sometimes the old welsh harper came and then we had a more set dance and some of the ladies maids and one or two of the upper men servants and the miller himself and mr taylor of the fall and the miller's brother tommy were asked and then things were carried on in a superior style we went into a larger room and there was more change of partners but as nothing could have induced the son and heir to ask a stranger i always had him whilst miss winnington and my sister sometimes fell to the share of the miller and his brother the miller being himself musical and footing it to the tune better than his partners the miller's brother seemed to wheel along rather than dance throwing himself back and looking in his white waistcoat which was kept for these grand occasions not unlike a sack of meal set upright on trucks and so pushed about the room 
I am ready to laugh to this hour when I think of these balls, and I certainly obtained very high celebrity then and there for being something very superior in the dancing line. The happy life at Stanford was not destined to last long, for Mr. Butt's health began to fail, and in the autumn of 1795 he died. Mrs. Butt took a house at Bridgenorth and settled there with her two daughters. Mary had now begun to write in good earnest, and while living at Bridgenorth, two of her tales were published, one called Margarita and the other Susan Gray. Probably very few people now living have ever seen or read these stories, and if we did come across them it is to be feared we should think them very dull and long-winded. But when new they were much admired, particularly Susan Gray, which was one of the earliest tales written to interest rich and educated people in the poor and ignorant. It was widely read and reprinted many and many times. In spite of the pleasure and excitement of authorship, life in the little house in the sleepy town of Bridgenorth was very dull and cramped to the two young girls, and they were made much happier, because they were much busier, when the clergyman of one of the town churches asked them to undertake the management of his Sunday school. This is what Sunday school teaching meant at the end of the 18th century. We attended the school so diligently on the Sunday that the parents brought the children in crowds, and we were obliged to stop short when each of us had about thirty-five girls and the old schoolmaster as many boys. We made bonnets and tippets for our girls, we walked with them to church, we looked them up in the weekdays, we were vastly busy, we were first amused and next deeply interested. Sunday schools, she goes on to say, then were comparatively new things, so that our attentions were more valued then than they would be nowadays. The next important event in Mary's life was her marriage with her cousin Henry, by which she became the Mrs. Sherwood whose name has been a household word to generations of children. Henry Sherwood had had a curious history, and had endured many hardships and adventures in his youthful days. As a boy of about thirteen he had made a voyage on a rotten old French coasting vessel, which was very nearly wrecked, was run into in the night by an unknown ship, and all but founded in the Bay of Biscay. The French Revolution had just begun, and when the brig touched at Marseilles, this young lad saw terrible sights of men hung from lamp-posts, heard the grisly cry, A la lanterne! A la lanterne! and was even himself seized by some of the mob, though he happily contrived in the confusion to slip away. In Marseilles, too, he first saw the guillotine. It was carried about in the streets in procession, whilst the populace yelled out the Marseillaise hymn. Later on in the Revolution he was seized as an Englishman and imprisoned with a number of others at Abbeville, but escaping from there he made a wonderful journey through France, Switzerland, and Germany with his father, stepmother, and their five young children, being driven by the state of affairs from town to town, and wandering further and further afield in the effort to reach England. At length, after difficulties and hardships innumerable, they landed at Hull, and Henry made his way to some of his relations, who took care of him and set him on his legs again. Henry Sherwood soon afterwards entered the army, joining the regiment then known as the 53rd Foot, and about the same time he began to come to Bridgenorth, where his pretty young cousin, Mary Butt, was growing more and more attractive. After a while he wrote her a letter, asking if she would be his wife, and on June the 30th, 1803, they were married at Bridgenorth. Mary's marriage made a great change to her life. She had married into what used to be called a marching regiment, which was constantly on the move from one station to another. After being transferred from place to place several times within a year, with long, wearisome journeys both by sea and land, following the regiment as it marched, the news came that the 53rd was ordered on foreign service, which meant a longer journey still. It was presently known that the regiment's destination was the East Indies, or, as we should now call it, India. This was a great blow to poor Mrs. Sherwood, for by this time she was the mother of a baby girl, whom she must leave behind in England. The regiment embarked at Portsmouth. Captain and Mrs. Sherwood had a miserable little cabin rigged up on deck, made only of canvas, and with a huge gun filling more than half the space. The vessel in which they sailed was called the Devonshire. It was quite a fleet that set sail, for besides the vessels needed to convey the troops, there had to be several armed cruisers in attendance. The war with France was going on, and there was continual danger of an attack by the enemy. When they had been more than three months at sea, three strange vessels were sighted, 
two of which soon ran up the french colours and began to fire without the slightest warning upon the english vessels in a moment all was bustle on board the devonshire clearing the decks for action the women and children were set down into the hold they had to sit for hours in the dark some way below water-mark while the shots whistled through the rigging overhead the guns roared the ladders had been taken away and none of them could learn a word of what was going forward on deck where their husbands and fathers were helping to man the guns the fighting continued till late at night but no serious damage befell the devonshire at length the women and children were hoisted up out of the hold and enjoyed some negus and biscuits from that time they saw no more of the french at last the voyage with its anxieties and discomforts was over the devonshire sailed into the hoogly and anchored in diamond harbour expecting boats to come down from calcutta to carry the regiment up there it would take too long to tell the story of the sherwood's life in india though mrs sherwood's account of it is very good reading two or three scenes will give you some notion of how she spent her time a certain number of the soldiers of the regiment were allowed to bring their wives and children out with them there were no government schools then for the regimental children so that these little people idled away their time round the barracks and were as ignorant as the day they were born it came into mrs sherwood's head to start a school for them and this school she herself taught for four hours every morning except in the very hottest weather and the only help she had was from a sergeant of the regiment a kind good man some of the officers also were very thankful to send their children to school so that mrs sherwood soon had as many as fifty boys and girls coming daily to her bungalow very hard work it was teaching them to read and write and to be gentle truthful and obedient she found the officers' children generally more troublesome than the soldiers because they were more spoilt or as she puts it pampered and indulged for these children she wrote many of her books especially her stories on the church catechism which can still be bought and which give a very interesting picture of the life of a soldier's child in india some eighty years ago besides her day-school mrs sherwood collected in her house several little orphans the children of poor soldiers wives who quickly died in the trying climate of india she found some of these children being dreadfully neglected and half-starved so took them home to her and brought them up with her own children she gives an amusing description of her home life in india during the hot season so terribly trying to europeans the mode of existence of an english family during the hot winds in india is so very unlike anything in europe that i must not omit to describe it every outer door of the house and every window is closed all the interior doors and venetians are however open whilst most of the private apartments are shut in by drop curtains or screens of grass looking like fine wire-work partially covered with green silk the hall which never has any other than borrowed lights in any bungalow is always in the centre of the house and ours at cawnpore had a large room on each side of it with baths and sleeping-rooms in the hot winds i always sat in the hall at cawnpore though i was that year without a baby of my own i had my orphan my little annie always by me quietly occupying herself and not actually receiving instruction from me i had given her a good-sized box painted green with a lock and key she had a little chair and table she was the neatest of all neat little people somewhat faddy in particular perchance she was the child of all others to live with an ancient grandmother annie's treasures were few but they were all contained in her green box she never wanted occupation she was either dressing her doll or finding pretty verses in her bible marking the places with an infinitude of minute pieces of paper it was a great delight to me to have this little quiet one by my side in another part of this hall sat mr sherwood during most part of the morning either engaged with his accounts his journal or his books he of course did not like the confinement so well as i did and often contrived to get out to a neighbour's bungalow in his palanquin during some part of the long morning in one of the side-rooms sat sergeant clark with his books and accounts this worthy and most methodical personage used to fill up his time in copying my manuscripts in a very neat hand and in giving lessons in reading and spelling etc to annie in the other room was the orphan sally with her toys beside her sat her attendant chewing her pawn footnote described to little henry and his bearer as an intoxicating mixture of opium and sugar End footnote, and enjoying a state of perfect apathy 
thus did our mornings pass whilst we sat in what the lovers of broad daylight would call almost darkness during these mornings we heard no sounds but the monotonous click click of the punker footnote the huge fan hanging from the ceiling by which the air of houses in india is kept moving End footnote. or the melancholy moaning of the burning blast without with the splash and dripping of the water thrown over the tatties footnote the tata is a blind or screen woven of sweet-smelling grass which is kept constantly wet by the water-carriers at one o'clock or perhaps somewhat later the tiffin answering to our luncheon was always served a hot dinner in fact consisting always of curry and a variety of vegetables we often dined at this hour the children at a little table in the room after which we all lay down the adults on sofas and the children on the floor under the punkah in the hall at four or later perhaps we had coffee brought we then bathed and dressed and at six or thereabouts the wind generally falling the tatties were removed the doors and windows of the house were opened and we either took an airing in carriages or sat in the veranda but the evenings and nights of the hot winds brought no refreshment the days spent in that strange hot twilight must have seemed very long to children even to those who had forgotten or never known the freedom of life in england but mrs sherwood had plenty of ways of filling her long quiet hours she wrote a number of little stories about life in india which were very much liked in their day and went through many editions one of these was called the ayah and lady and told about a native servant her ignorant notions and strange ways and how her mistress tried to do her good another was lucy and her die the history of a little english girl and her dark-skinned nurse who was so devoted to her that she nearly broke her heart when lucy went home to england and she was left behind but the best of them all was little henry and his bearer which is one of the most famous stories ever written for children the history of little henry the neglected orphan child whom nobody loved save his poor faithful heathen bearer or native servant is exceedingly pretty and touching mrs sherwood was always thinking about children and trying to find out ways of helping them to be happy and good a page from her diary will show how often she must have been grieved and distressed at the spoiled boys and girls she saw in the houses of the english merchants and civil servants at calcutta and elsewhere i must now proceed she writes to some description of miss louisa the eldest daughter then in india of our friends who at that time might have been about six or seven she was tall of her age very brown and very pale she had been entirely reared in india and was accustomed from her earliest infancy to be attended by a multitude of servants whom she despised thoroughly as being black although no doubt she preferred their society to her own country people as they ministered with much flattery and civility to her wants wherever she had moved during these first years of her life she had been followed by her ayah and probably by one or two bearers and she was perfectly aware that if she got into any mischief they would be blamed and not herself in the meantime except in the article of food every desire and every caprice and every want had been indulged to satiety no one who has not seen it can imagine the profusion of toys which are scattered about an indian house wherever the babalog children people are permitted to range there may be seen fine polished and painted toys from benares in which all the household utensils of the country the fruit and even the animals are represented the last most ludicrously incorrect toys in painted clay from Moshedabad and calcutta representing figures of gods and goddesses with horses camels elephants peacocks and parrots and now and then a tope-waller or hat-wearer as they call the english in full regimentals and cocked hat seated on a clumsy ill-formed thing meant for a horse then add to these english french and dutch toys which generally lie pell-mell in every corner where the listless toy-satiated child may have thrown or kicked them the quantity of inner and outer garments worn by a little girl in england would render it extremely fatiguing to change the dress so often as our little ladies are required to do in india miss louise's attire consisted of a single garment a frock-body without sleeves attached to a pair of trousers with rather a short full skirt gathered into the body with the trousers so as to form one whole the whole being ruffled with the finest gindeli a cloth which is not unlike cambric every ruffle being plaited in the most delicate manner 
these ruffles are doubled and trebled on the top of the arm forming there a substitute for a sleeve and the same is done round the ankle answering the purpose almost of a stocking or at least concealing its absence fine coloured kid shoes ought to have completed this attire but it most often happened that these were kicked away among the rejected toys how many times in a day the dress of miss louisa was renewed who shall say it however depended much upon the accidents which might happen to it but four times was the usual arrangement which was once before breakfast once after once again before tiffin and once again for the evening airing the child being now nearly seven years old was permitted to move about the house independently of her ayah thus she was sometimes in the hall sometimes in the veranda sometimes in one room sometimes in another in an indian house in the hot season no inner door is ever shut and curtains only are hung in the doorways so that this little wild one was in and out and everywhere just as it hit her fancy she had never been taught even to know her letters she had never been kept to any task she was a complete slave of idleness restlessness and ennui it is time for louisa to go to england was quietly remarked by the parents and no one present controverted the point children like this must have made the good mrs sherwood very unhappy her own little ones of whom she had three who lived to come home to england were very differently brought up she had also a lovely little boy named henry and a little fair-haired lucy who both died in india before they were two years old it would be impossible to end even this short sketch of mrs sherwood's indian life without mentioning her friendship with henry martin that saintly soul and famous missionary in india and persia when the sherwoods knew him he was government chaplain at dinapore a great military station at which the fifty-third foot then was mrs sherwood nursed him through a bad illness and she and her husband afterwards paid him a visit in his quarters at cawnpore to which place he had been transferred he had a school at cawnpore for little native children and worked hard at preaching to the heathen while all the time doing his utmost for the soldiers of the various regiments stationed in the barracks the sherwoods heard his wonderful farewell sermon before starting for persia and the news of his death in that far land reached them not long before they quitted india for england after being about twelve years in the east the fifty-third regiment was ordered home and very thankful captain and mrs sherwood were to bring the children they still had living safely back to a more healthy climate two of the orphans came with them so there were quite a party of little people on board the ship and when they landed at liverpool they must have been a very quaint-looking group for we had not a bonnet in the party we all wore caps trimmed with lace white dresses and indian shawls can we wonder if as mrs sherwood goes on to say we were followed wherever we went by hundreds of the residents of liverpool the rest of mrs sherwood's long life was spent in england save for an occasional visit to france and switzerland she and her husband settled in the west where she had been born and bred and of which she was so fond she had more children most of whom died young and she lived a very busy active useful life working hard at writing stories and tracts visiting the prison at worcester and doing whatever good and useful work lay within her power the first part of the fairchild family was published in eighteen eighteen it was so popular that more than twenty years afterwards she wrote a second part which as you will see begins at page one hundred and fifty as we read we shall notice little points of difference between it and the first part but our friends lucy emily and henry are just as nice and as naughty as good and as silly as they were in the opening chapters of the book a few years later when a very old woman mrs sherwood wrote a third part of the fairchild family in which she was helped by her daughter mrs kelly but this third part is less entertaining and interesting than the two which went before it and is also not entirely mrs sherwood's own work so you will not find it printed here in eighteen fifty one mrs sherwood died at twickenham where she had gone to live a few years previously in the course of her long life she had seen many trials and sorrows but she had had a great deal of happiness she had made the very most of all the gifts given her by god countless children have been the happier and the better for what she wrote for them and by means of this new edition of a dear old book with its pleasant type and charming illustrations i hope a new generation will spring up of lovers and admirers of mrs sherwood mary e palgrave End of introduction. Recording by Ellen O'Neill from Cambridge, England.